Hello and welcome to episode four of the Mental Block with me, Ryan. Um, today, I'm very lucky to have um, with me Miss Katie Moon, who is a nurse and the host of the Mad Moon podcast. How are you doing, Katie? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for coming on. I know it wasn't um, planned to be as early as this, but I'm glad I could tie you down and um, <laughs> get you get you on the podcast, to be honest with you. Um, so yeah, Katie, if you wanted to just kind of tell us a little bit about you. Okay, so I am a 30-year-old nurse. I, I suppose the first thing you always go to tell people is about your career. So I think I'm just going to take that route because that's the natural route my brain's telling me to tell you about, um, especially with the pandemic and everything. So I qualified as a nurse in 2012 and I, was, I started off newly qualified in a specialised intensive care unit. And because of emotional burnout, back injury, uh, personal trauma, I left the NHS for a few years. I was still considered clinical, but I wasn't. I worked in like the disability benefit system. Um, so it's assessing people for their benefits, training other healthcare professionals, um, but it wasn't hands-on clinical or in a hospital setting. Right. And then I missed being a nurse. So returned back to the NHS last May I say by accident, I handed in my notice before the pandemic hit. I couldn't retract my notice. And then my job at the hospital was put on hold. So it was just bad timing. So I found myself back in the NHS after having four months off sick with stress and anxiety and my depression um, had a bad exacerbation of that. And yeah, here I am. I'm, I'm still in the NHS and I've been redeployed to intensive care. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind of a year. I had a house move in there and some fertility investigations as well. So it's been, oh, wow. it's been a bit chaotic. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, so, yeah, we, we're going to go into, I think, a lot more of that as we go on through our, um, through our talk. Um, but you also do a podcast, don't you? I do. Yeah. How did I not even mention that? <laughs> I decided to throw a podcast in there as well while all this craziness is going on. <laughs> um, what, what, yeah, what so, about that? Yeah, tell us all about your podcast because I, I found it really, really, um, really good and interesting, to be honest with you, when I've been listening to a few episodes. Oh, thank you. Um, so basically, I started the podcast because I've been obsessed with podcasts for years now. They really helped me through some of my dark times and when my depression has been bad or my anxiety has been bad. I've always like reached for a podcast and um, so when I returned to the NHS last year like I say kind of start of the pandemic going back into the NHS culture was a really big shock to me and there's just been a lot of things that have really surprised me or haven't sat well with me and I feel like I'm constantly trying to muscle into the hospital into these different areas and you know constantly <laughs> you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Why haven't we got that? Where's the wellbeing support? Where's this? Like, we've all fallen apart. Nurses make up the biggest workforce of healthcare, and yet we've got the highest number of vacancies. People don't want to be nurses anymore. We've got the highest level of sickness. It's all due to stress. There's just very little in place for us, and things are very taboo. Like, things that I'm used to just talking about, I'm getting really funny looks or I'm being told to fall in line because there's this oh, big wow. hierarchy thing in the NHS um, and I just got sick of it so I thought right everyone's putting us on this pedestal as you know healthcare professionals your heroes and I thought no 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 stop it like we're human let's rehumanize healthcare professionals we've also got things going on at home it's we've, we're all suffering from compassion fatigue moral distress moral injury but everyone's too frightened to talk about it. And I just thought, well, I'm not. So let's talk about it. I want to talk about it. Let, let's make, let's normalise it because it's inevitable that every healthcare professional is going to experience these things at some point in their career. So why don't we talk about it? Why have we got no coping mechanisms, no resources or tools to, to recognise it? So that kind of is how I came to thinking... Right, I'm just going to start a podcast, let people come on. They can use an alias if they want, nothing yeah. identifiable. Even if they don't 
you know they don't feel comfortable being open about who they are because again as healthcare professionals we've got all this accountability will be struck off you're accountable for your actions you can lose your pin number you'll never work as a nurse again um so i'm like right come on use an alias completely confidential say what you want to say job done yeah i'm loving it (laughs) (laughs) no that's brilliant and like you say you're giving people in your profession an outlet as well Mm -hmm. and in in a safe environment as well because like say use an alias you don't have to dob anyone in um and you touched on having the, the largest number of vacancies. Do you think that's due to the pandemic, mainly? I couldn't tell you. I mean, from a fact-checking point of view, I have not fact-checked. So statistic-wise, I'm not sure. But it's always being bounced around, that, especially in the trust I work in, that we've got nurses of the biggest workforce and we've definitely got the most amount of vacancies. And it has got worse since the pandemic. But then something was on the news recently, this week actually, that said more people than ever have applied to do nursing, as in applied to university. Um, So that's positive. Yeah, yeah, I think the pandemic's definitely made it worse because all the people I work with and all the people I have spoken to who were all over the place, they're not just from, you know, my trust or my area. Um, everyone's looking at different avenues to get out of nursing because we're just burnt out. We're so burnt out and no one's looking after us. And would you say you're burnt out because of the pandemic and the amount of pressure that's been put on you as a service Mm. in the past year? Yeah, it's insane. And just the lack of support, the politics, Mm. the things that people don't even think about. So like with me being redeployed to intensive care, it's not working in intensive care that's making me feel burnt out. It's the fact that I'd actually just started a new job role, was instantly redeployed. The job role I'm in, my new job role is only on a fixed term contract. So the less time I spend in that role, the less chance I have of that role becoming permanent because I'm not able to demonstrate my skills and that I deserve a permanent role. I'm also trying to conceive So then it's less time for them to get to know me before I hopefully at some point in the near future get pregnant. And then as a woman, it's that fear of, right, well, as soon as I'm pregnant, they're not going to give me a permanent role because I'm going to go off on maternity leave. So it's it's all those anxieties because all the issues pre-pandemic are are still there. The pandemic's just exacerbated them, if if, if anything. But yeah, the the pressure on the NHS is insane. And I suppose another good example, when I was redeployed to ITU a few weeks ago initially, my first shift, I hadn't been clinical for five years. I hadn't worked in an intensive care unit for five years. I wasn't supposed to be given a patient to care for because ITU is one nurse to one patient because they really do need that level of care because of the amount of infusions and intravenous drugs and blood tests and hence the word intense. I walked in having not done any of that level of care for five years and was told you've got two patients, a post-op neurosurgery, so a lady who'd had brain surgery and had what they call an intracranial bolt in her brain, something I'd never worked with and yet here I was looking after her, as well as a patient with meningitis, knew nothing about meningitis other than an advert that always sticks in my head of babies with a rash and you roll a glass over it. Yeah, I've never yeah. cared for a patient with meningitis, never cared for a patient that's had neurosurgery. And yet I was now looking after both of them. And, and that's what we're facing. And you was just expected to jump in with both feet and just get on with it. You weren't like yeah. trained or anything or, you know, given, you weren't given no help, nothing. Nope. It was just, I'm really sorry. We're, we're short on the ground. You wow. used to work in ITU. You know how how to look after somebody on a ventilator. Off you go. There's two patients, and I'm just very very lucky that I had my be- literally my best friend in the same area. So we had I had two patients. She had one really really poorly patient, and she looked after that one. And then I had the other two. And then about an hour in, we had a couple of theatre nurses come in to su- to support me with like anything I needed that they were trained in um so it was like we managed it was okay and there's been a lot of shifts like that where you just 
you're not a person you're just somebody with a set of skills you run in and you scrubs and it's a case of um who's itu trained you uh yeah you go to that area take bed number one um uh, who's who's a healthcare assistant? Who who can take arterial blood gases? Um, right. like you go support over it's it's mental, it's carnage in there. I mean, my, my only experience, like, I don't think I've ever. You don't normally get allowed into an intensive care unit, do you? Unless you're kind of visiting potentially maybe a patient. But yeah. I've never really experienced being in one. But when when you see them on like the TV and stuff like things like Casualty and Holby City and stuff like that, I always think, is that is that real? Do you know what I mean? Is that is that what it's really like? it's worse <laughs> i was gonna say it must be worse and that i think i'm really like i really really like watching 24 hours in a and e i know it's a completely different kind of thing to like the intensive care units but i think when you watch a program like that it actually shows you the real kind of hospital yeah. and the pressure that you're under as as a service mm. yeah it's insane and the level of the level of knowledge and skill you have to have to work in that environment safely is yeah it's crazy which is part of the reason i left because it, it's frightening you can yeah. kill you can kill somebody all i have to do is press a button and i've accidentally overdosed somebody and their blood pressure drops or it goes through the roof and there's you can very easily kill somebody in that environment and that that alone is terrifying yeah so it sounded to be honest with you mm. But, um, you know, you said you kind of took a step back and you took a time out for three or four or five years or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, let's, let's delve into that part, because does that tie in to everything you've struggled with, with your mental health, your anxiety, depression and stuff like that? Does that all kind yeah. of it all kind of happen around the same time? Was that your first exposure to it all with yourself or? I think reflect being able to reflect back now, I wasn't aware I had anxiety or any sort of depression or low mood at that time I was just I didn't know that's what it was um but yeah I had a lot of anxiety and one of the main reason like I say is I've got arthritis in my spine so my back was knackered it still is and it just wasn't a good environment for anybody with a back problem or back pain um but as well as that when God, how long have, I don't I don't even remember what year it was now but it was about 2015 I think and my partner's dad became really unwell really quickly and before we knew it um he was in intensive care and he was in the intensive care that was just down the corridor to the, the intensive care I worked in um and he bounced around the wards and bounced around the hospitals and he was in the enhanced care unit so it's not as intense and that was just on the ward directly above my intensive care unit I had to only take one flight of stairs and I was in the bay he was in where well in the corridor because he was in a side room and I was on shift I don't know how old I was 24 23 um and I was I was on break had a little tray of chips and gravy one of my managers was sat next to me and being the cardiac specialist unit for you know intensive care for post-cardiac surgery my manager had a bleep on so anytime there's a cardiac arrest in the hospital the bleep obviously goes mad makes a loud bleeping noise and says cardiac arrest yeah. and says exactly where that cardiac arrest is so I heard cardiac arrest ward 22 ECU side room 23 and I will never forget that wow. and I legged it I just ran chips and gravy all down my dress flew up a flight of stairs and I don't know what I was expecting or what I thought I was going to do or but they were the team were there that they were on his chest doing compressions and it doesn't matter that I was a ITU nurse working in a cardiac unit that was a loved one that was somebody I knew and he was dying they wanted they were people were jumping on his chest shouting for adrenaline shouting for things defib was there they were putting pads on him and I was just there covered in gravy looking like a right psychopath and they didn't know who I was they didn't know that I was a relative um and I, I stayed working there for about 12 months after that yeah, he ended yeah. up passing away the next day in intensive care we withdrew treatment on him because he he just wasn't going to survive and I couldn't do CPR. I worked in a cardiac unit and I, I avoided CPR for 12 months. Didn't do it once until 
one of my managers recognised that I was avoiding it, which sounds awful. You're a nurse avoiding CPR, but trust me, it's easier said than done because there are so many jobs to do. So when there's a cardiac arrest, somebody will shout cardiac arrest bed two, cardiac arrest, whatever. And I would shout, I'll put the call out because you have to ring 2222, cardiac arrest on this area, and then the bleep goes out. And he cottoned on that I was avoiding cardiac arrests and that I would run and put the call out because by the time I'd done that, a whole team was with the patient. So I didn't need to do chest compressions. Yeah. The rest of the team were there. And he he realised that and he made me do CPR one day. He literally grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, you're you're put an apron on you're going next and it was terrifying but I'm glad he did that and he did that mm. but yeah it was really traumatic did you recognize yourself that he was avoiding it because of what you'd seen oh, or was it because of what you'd seen with your your partner's dad or was it because you just yeah. didn't want to do it it was purely it was down to that moment so it was a trauma basically yeah, yeah completely as soon as I heard the bleep as soon as I heard that bleeping noise and it was cardiac arrest, my heart was just 140 in my chest. I just couldn't, I'd be like, it was like it just took me back to that whole scenario because as yeah. you can imagine, it didn't, it didn't stop there. It there were there were things that happened after his heart attack that were just like I I burst through the doors. Um and my partner was there, cool, cool as a cucumber, just on on the hospital phone, and he looked over at me and went, what are you doing here? And I was obviously crying, covered in gravy. Mm. And I was like, I heard the arrest call. I heard the bleep. And he was like, and his mum's a nurse. So he knows what that means. And I remember he was on the phone to his uncle and he went, my dad's having a heart attack. And I was like panicking, not realising what I was saying. I was like, yeah, he's having a heart attack. He's having a heart attack now. And he didn't know. And that's how I broke the news to him. And then it kind of everything that happened after that. And yeah, it was it was just so traumatic. And I just I just associated hearing the bleep for a cardiac arrest with with that, with that moment and how it made me feel. Yeah, I mean, for me, sitting here hearing that, it kind of makes me realise that even though you are a nurse and you see you probably see these things every day when you go to work, because you've suffered that trauma, you're still human. Do you know what mm. I mean? Yes, yes, you, yes. And, you know, I've got so much respect for doctors and nurses, especially through what, what's going on. But I had it for them anyway. But just because you're a nurse doesn't mean that what you've seen or what, you know, a moment in your career hasn't traumatised you and it's given you, sent you to be a really anxious person and, mm. you, know, almost, you know, petrified of doing something which most people would think, well, that's your job. You know, CPR is your job, yeah. you're a nurse. I mean but it's for you it's completely changed your outlook on it yeah completely it it, I think I can deal with it a lot better now because it was about I think seven seven years ago and I've had a lot of other traumatic life events happen since then and I've had therapy and I'm I'm medicated and I've got coping mechanisms and I've, I've had a lot of time to process it um, but yeah, when I reflect back on it, I was really traumatized by by the whole the whole situation. Definitely, yeah. it really had a huge impact. And I was listening to um, your episode with Ben. Yeah. And I'm sure he said at some point, you know, I'm really lucky. I never have to go to that hospital again. There's no yeah. triggers. I had to continue working in that environment. I had to I had to walk past where it all happened. I had to walk past the relatives' room, the room where we, they told us he was going to die and they were going to withdraw. I had to go to the ward where he had the arrest. I had to see the team who were doing CPR on him. I had to see the consultant who who told us the bad news. Every day, I was working in an environment where it, I was just surrounded by triggers and things that reminded me of something really traumatic and my granddad was also really sick at the time in the same hospital oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah and I was really 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 close to my granddad um oh yeah it was just a nightmare it was just all thrown at me at once <laughs> yeah and it seems that sometimes it seems to happen that way you know I've spoken to numerous people and they've always said that that like when they've experienced a very traumatic time it seems like it just spirals one after the other you kind of it's always yeah. a really really shitty moment in your life 
or a low moment where another loved one's ill and then all of a sudden another loved person, loved one becomes ill and it just spirals. Um, so did that kind of put you down a route of, of seeking therapy or was there a delay in like even coming to terms that you were struggling or? Yeah, huge delay because what happened then, my granddad passed away six months later and my granddad was definitely a, another parent to me. I was so, 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 so close to my granddad and being a nurse, I was able to care for him. And as deaths go, he had the most perfect death anyone could have. He died in the care home at the end of his street where he'd lived his whole life. And he said, that's where he wanted to die. He was like, I wanna die on Abbey Road. And we were like, right, that's where you'll die then on Abbey Road. And he had heart failure. He was in his nineties. He got to say everything he wanted to say. And we had all the time we wanted with him. So Sam, um, sorry, my partner had lost his dad in a really traumatic, horrendous way because it wasn't actually the heart attack. He wasn't in for cardiac reasons. There's a whole other story behind that as well. So it was to do with his bowel and a lot of things went wrong and surgery, but it was all very, very quick. He was only in his fifties. So Sam had lost his dad, really traumatic. And then I'd lost my granddad, which although I say it was the most perfect death, I I was still traumatized. I'd still lost somebody I loved dearly and was devastated my heart was broken and we were only in our early 20s we just bought our first house and we didn't know how to grieve together we I didn't know how to support him he didn't know how to support me his grief was very obviously resentful angry why my dad that's not fair he was young and then mine was just very much I was very sad I just missed my my granddad I missed the to me the only person that was like my constant he never let me down he was always there he just never judged me he never he was just I couldn't fault my granddad and the relationship I had with him so I just felt completely lost I'd spent 18 months being with him and looking after him and hospital appointments and bathing him and sitting with him and everything so we we just didn't know how to look after each other and it just spiraled for a few years and it led us to breaking up um and then that's kind of when it all really came crushing down on me and I just didn't know who I was I didn't understand the decisions I was making um I was really lonely I didn't understand why my partner didn't want to be with me why I didn't want to be with him it was just yeah it just became a bit of a mess really and then that's when I sort that I went to a therapist wow so I mean that's all at a young age as well really like you say 23 24 that's a lot to deal with um yeah and like I say just talking now they're they're very traumatic events you know I, I lost my grandparents when I was 15 and 18 do you know what I mean so I was a lot younger but it's still it's still I don't. I think no matter how old you are, losing someone is losing someone. Doesn't doesn't matter, and it losing whoever it is doesn't matter. It's still going to play a massive, massive part on your mental well being. Mm. Um, but listening to what you just said there, it's, it just again it just goes to show that just because you're a nurse, and I don't mean just because in a derogatory way, but no, no, no. that is your chosen profession, and that's what you enjoy to do. But it means that behind that nurse, there is a real person. You know, someone who also needs to put their hand up sometimes and say, I'm struggling. Yeah, completely. And it's really frowned upon in our profession. It's really, and this always surprises people that we're in such a compassionate profession where we have to show all this kindness and look after people and care for people. But the culture can very much be, suck it up, you're here to do a job. Mm. Like, get on with it, leave it at the door. And it's like, what? (laughs) <laughs> oh, i'm sure there's some nurses i'm sure there's some nurses and doctors out there that can do that do you know what i mean oh, uh, are very very easily emotionally detached when they get to the front door work is work home is home and mm. if you can do that then fantastic but why should you have to do that yeah it's just not healthy it doesn't no. show that openness and i think you have to be open and you have to be able to say look i might not be myself today i might just need that little extra support from you all because 
as you all might know, my granddad's in on, on the ward downstairs and obviously just lost Sam's dad and I'm just a little bit fragile at the minute yeah. because it's not as clear cut and black and white as we shouldn't be at work then. It's not no. like that. It's not, it's more complicated than that. And people don't always understand that. I suppose because, and I suppose in a way you kind of, did you beat yourself up a bit not being able to be maybe the nurse you wanted to be when you was going through that time? Did you kind of? Yeah, completely. Yeah. I had so much guilt because one, one of my patients even wrote me a letter saying oh, wow. about how proud my granddad would be of me and not to feel bad. So I had, because we, we would have long-term patients sometimes that would be with us for, for a while because they just wouldn't recover as quickly as we'd like after their cardiac surgery. And yeah, I'll never forget that letter, bless her. She had really severe dyslexia. So that's another reason I, wouldn't, I won't forget the letter. But um, mm-hmm. It was just lovely and I just but it made me feel really sad and really guilty that she'd recognized that and she'd obviously although I thought she might have just been dozing or whatever she'd heard people coming up to me saying you're right are you okay how's your granddad today and she'd been listening and she'd heard it all and she just wrote me this lovely letter and as lovely as it was just add to that guilt that I'm not giving the best care that I should be giving because my mind's elsewhere and I'm worrying and I was exhausted as well. I was doing 13-hour shifts. But because the wards are so short-staffed and they always have been, I'd get in at 6.30, go and wash my granddad, get him out of bed, sit him in the chair, make sure we had a drink and everything close close by in his call cool and stuff. Go up to work, get washed and dressed for work. Then on any breaks that I had, I'd go and feed and toilet my granddad because there'd be one nurse to... 12 to 16 patients some days with one healthcare assistant so they wouldn't always get around to washing him to shaving him um or sometimes just you don't have time to sit and encourage someone to eat or tell them why it's important that they eat it just gets put down in front of them and they can't be bothered so they don't eat anything but then i'd have to go down and be like come on granddad you just just have half of it you'll feel better just have half of it They, they haven't got time to do that when they've got 14 patients to look after so i was exhausted I wasn't looking after myself. I was absolutely exhausted. That, that's the other thing as well, isn't it? Because I think a lot of, well, from what I know of, you know, nurses and doctors and frontline workers in the NHS, they seem to run themselves into the ground a lot. Mm-hmm. And they seem to go the extra mile a lot, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they always do that extra bit of time that they're not put down to do. And, you know, and it, it, I suppose you wouldn't be in that job if you weren't a caring person number one yeah you know what I mean but at the same time and I see it everywhere you know plastered all over social media and every, everyone I've ever spoke to this you know help me and stuff they've always said look before you can be happy in yourself and love yourself and let everyone else see how happy you are you have to you have to sit down and reevaluate yourself and what you're going through mm-hmm. and deal with it you know you can't just keep putting it putting it off or putting it to the back of your mind yeah um so it sounds like you did that. You eventually kind of built up the courage to go, you know, speak to someone. Yeah. Yeah, it took a long time. Did you go to a counsellor? Did you go to friends, family? What, what, did you, what did you do? What was your journey? Nobody. I just did what most people do at first and pretended everything was fine um, to everybody that I spoke to when they contacted me. But I moved to a village away from everybody and I still don't know why I did that. So I was isolated. I left the NHS where all my friends were. I'd left Sam because we just weren't getting on. I had a really strange next door neighbour who was lovely, but um, we just had a really weird neighbourly friendship. It was really bizarre. Like, we, she, well, I say we, she'd just let herself in my house and I'd come in and her cat would be on my bed and she'd just want to borrow really random things off me. But she was lovely. She meant well. Um, and I was having a really really bad panic attack one day and I don't think at the time again I don't think I recognized it as a panic attack I just thought I'm just having a bad day I need a good cry I need to get this off my chest but I couldn't breathe and I was on the floor like rocking and holding my chest and she let herself in to borrow some soy sauce or something (laughs) god knows what she wanted this time and she was like this I do this too this happens to me too you should see my therapist 
and that was it I was just really lucky that she found me and yeah then I just started therapy from there and it was the best thing I ever ever did and do you still do you still go through therapy or do you still are you still kind of exploring therapy or do you dip in dip out when you need it what what? yeah definitely dip in and dip out when I need it and it's it's really expensive private therapy is really expensive and I don't quite feel this is another thing I do quite a lot I feel very guilty to utilizing the NHS um, because I know the pressure it's under especially yeah. the mental health sector so I'm lucky and you know when I got a bit of extra money from the house sale and stuff like that I was like right okay yeah I've got a little bit of savings that's what I'll spend it on um, whereas now I'm I think I suppose therapy's made me more open to knowing what my coping mechanisms are. So I don't feel like I need therapy. It's not always the first thing I go to. I mean, I'm medicated now, which is, again, another brilliant decision I made. Right. Although I had to be coaxed into it, but big advocate for, for medication and visiting your GP. Yeah. Um, especially since being a research sister for a short while, I now know the effort and time that goes into clinical trials and medicine trials so yeah I'm all for medication and I've just got loads of help, like good coping mechanisms now um but yeah I'm a big advocate for therapy I ended up doing my my training I did my level oh, two yeah. and my level three so I'm a trained counsellor oh wow um Is it something and I got a lot out of that say so that again sorry is that something you think about exploring at a later date counselling or no I did it more for personal development rather than professional development um and I definitely utilize those skills in my podcast with my guests and in like my relationships friends family my partner so it's more I think I was the only person on the course who was like I'm here for personal development but yeah it's again another great a great thing that I did that yeah, I love it. I, I, I would have counselling weekly if I could, if I could afford it. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Just to reflect. Everybody needs that time just to, just for themselves and just to reflect. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, you know, because when I had, when I've had some telephone, because it had to be telephone counselling due to COVID. So when I've had, mm. when I've had mine, there'd be some weeks where I'm sitting there talking to them for an hour. You know, I'll sit there for an hour and I'll talk to them about everything that I've felt that week or the past two weeks or whatever and then some weeks they phone you up and you're like how you doing yeah i'm fine you know i feel really good this week and they're like okay and you have a five minute chat and that's it you know so like my my, mine's been provided for a hospice due to my dad's illness so um it's it's, you know i'm lucky that it's all kind of provided for immediate family um but you know it's just it's the best thing i've ever done because it brought up so much from my past that I thought I'd dealt with that I never had. So, mm. but yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I always put it off, always said, oh no, you know, that whole stigma thing around men, you know, I'll be all right. You know, I don't need to talk to anyone. Yeah. And then I finally did it. And I really wish I'd have done it years earlier, to be honest with you, especially when, like you said about your, your, your granddad, I was really, really close to my nan and she lived with us for a couple of years before she passed. And, um, I really wish I'd have spoke to someone straight after she passed, but yeah. I never did. And it was only now with my dad going through what he's going through that I actually spoke to a counsellor and opened up more about that, um, yeah. which is another story, which will, will be, a you know, another time to talk about. But I'm, I'm with you on that, that counselling is fantastic and, you know, just talking to people. Yeah, I think a lot of people really misunderstand what counselling is because mm. they're like, well, I've got my friends to talk to, I've got my family to talk to, but they're not they're not objective they don't and they're not trained so they just want what's best for you and they love you and they're emotionally involved so they want to fix you and rescue you and save you and they're like well have you tried this have you tried that but it's really different when you say to a loved one I'm really struggling I'm just I'm not sleeping I'm crying all the time and they're like oh well you know we all feel like that you know and black and you know they try and save you but then when you sit with a counsellor and they give you that quiet and that reflection time and they say you look really sad yeah I can see why I can see why you're crying that that sounds awful that sounds really difficult yeah it's that validating your feelings and validating that yeah 
Yeah, I can see. I can see how hard it is for you on your face. It it looks really painful. No, you're right. you don't say that to your loved ones. You don't. No, you, don't. you are right, and I think I think the best thing for me personally, I don't know about others, but when you when I spoke to someone I didn't know, it helped because they can't judge you. They don't know anything about your past. They don't know anything about who you really are. They're there to help you with the here and now and what you're struggling with. They don't need to, you know, they don't. They won't say to you, "Well, well, a few years ago you wouldn't have worried about that," or, you know, and well, yeah, but that was. It's just so much. It's a clean slate, and you can just say what you want, and you won't don't feel judged. Yeah, completely. That's so true because you're right. When you again, when you speak to a loved one, they'll just be thinking, "Well, you're not even that close," or. Well, I did think you had a great relationship with that person anyway. Why are you so offended? Or And they'll say those things. <laughs> but, yeah, you don't have that. Like you say, complete clean slate. And, yeah, I love counselling. Huge advocate for it. I'd have it every week if I could afford it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think a lot of people I know would as well. It's very, very, yeah. it's very expensive. But it's worth its weight in gold for sure. Yeah, and definitely. I'll tell a lot of people not to forget that there is other services out there that are free, you know, mm. that you can get a similar kind of um, service. I know mine do a thing where you can get six weeks counselling like for yeah. free and you can, it's a long waiting list, don't get me wrong, especially now, but yeah. it's so worth just putting your name down. Yeah, there's so many. And I mean, definitely after our talk, I'll send you some helplines that you can pop in your show notes that are specifically for healthcare professionals. Oh yeah, perfect. And there is, there, once you actually start looking, there's, um, like our workforce like nursing is hugely made up of Filipino nurses um, and I found out there's a whole separate helpline for Filipino nurses where they can speak to people in their native language and I just think that is amazing Brilliant, especially yeah. with like our, our BAME colleagues and you know that they're, they're the highest risk of getting COVID so how frightened are they they're away from their family they've been told they're a much higher risk of catching the virus and now they've got someone they can speak to in their native language and I just think that's lovely that that's available so yeah there is there's so much so many resources out there once you start looking all right brilliant it's brilliant um so yeah moving on from obviously what you've kind of the therapy and stuff you're now going through another part of your life aren't you that you're finding quite um I can imagine you find it very very tough you know um and that would be the fertility investigations that we've spoken about. So did you, you know, if you're happy to, did you want to kind of talk about them? Yeah, no, more than happy to. So being a young woman, I have spent most of my life on the contraceptive pill. And you, you always just think you're going to have a family one day and it'll be easy. Come off the pill and bam, you know, pregnant, job done, that, that's it. And it's not gone that way at all. Um, so we've been trying to conceive for nearly two years now. But that in itself is, is an argument because I, I'd say we've been trying to conceive for nearly two years because we've not been using contraception for that long. But my partner sees trying to conceive as a very different thing. So even that, you know, there's a big difference between what men and women think is trying to conceive. Um, because I never wanted to put huge amounts of pressure on and, you know, all these horrible things you can do mucus tracking temperature tracking yeah. ovulation sticks every month apps and all these things and all these vitamins and I didn't want to go down that route um but no it has been nearly two years in, in my heart that's how it feels and after a year most places most GPs will refer you to have some investigations so I have found out I'm a group strep B carrier which is a type of bacteria that a lot of people can just carry um but it can cause i think it can cause bacterial meningitis in babies during labor so luckily for me i'm lucky that i know that all it means is i'll be on iv antibiotics when i'm in labor uh, and then i also found out i've got what's called a bicornuate womb which is a heart-shaped womb so depending on the severity of the deviation of the heart shape bit mm -hmm. the baby could always be breech so the baby will never turn around and I won't ever be able to have a natural labor and again that initially that was really upsetting for me really traumatic um 
I just always imagined I'd have this lovely natural labour. It's something that as a woman you think you should be able to do. But again, having all this time to reflect on it now, I've realised I'm actually really lucky because a lot of women go through a whole pregnancy with a, with a birthing plan and then they have to have an emergency C-section. Whereas now I know chances are I'm going to have this lovely planned C-section where everyone knows what's going on and I'm taken down to theatre. So again, now, now I realise I'm actually very lucky. Um, and now the latest thing has been I've got low egg reserve. So it is a case of I have to have a high cosy, which is they have to check if my fallopian tubes are blocked. If they are, it's probably surgery and IVF. If they're not, we go down the IUI route, which is effectively they put his sperm higher up in my uterus for me. Um, we get three rounds of that. Success rate is really low. If they don't work, it's IVF anyway. So because of the pandemic, huge waiting list. I have no idea when this investigation will happen. Um, obviously being 30, everyone around me is pregnant. Yeah. Um, pregnancy announcements are a killer, especially when it's a best friend, which has happened a few times to me. Um, and it's really hard. It's taken a really long time to recognise that actually certain feelings can coexist. It's okay to be really happy for my friend, but be really sad for myself. And for a long time, I didn't understand that. And I felt like a terrible human being. And I had so much guilt and shame and just thought, God, what an evil person. Like, how, why am I crying with sadness because she's pregnant? That's not fair. Like, I'm such an awful person. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, I'm lucky I've got some really good friends. And they've said to me that, Katie, they can coexist. You're allowed to be happy for her and sad for you. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. Like, I've, um, I've, I've had friends, you know, that are going through similar, similar issues to yourself. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not a woman, so I don't fully understand them, you know, and I'm not going to try and even try and do that and insult anyone by saying, oh, yeah, I understand, because I don't because yeah. I don't, I don't have a womb, you know, my, my part in having a baby, you know, it's usually done in two minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I'm, you know, in all honesty, you know, men have a very, very, I say easy job. Um, and on the face of it, yeah, we do have an easy job, you know, you, you donate your sperm and then the woman does the rest. That is how mm -hmm. everyone sees it. And that's what, you know, people say, oh, it happens for people. And I'm very lucky, you know, we, we did we did have that. Um, but I've got friends that, you know, can't either can't have any more children or, mm. you know, or going through similar things to yourself and or, you know, even people that have miscarried, you know, five, six yeah. times. I know I know people have done that. I've got, and it's just so sad when I look at it from an outside point of view. And yeah. you're very, very right in the fact that, I know that they've been very, very jealous, and you, you can call it jealous or envy um, when someone close to them announces their pregnancy and they're sitting there feeling almost inferior. And you, you can't, yeah. they constantly question themselves, like, why, why can't I do this? And why, why does this happen to me? And the questions I can imagine are just endless. Yeah, it's just resentment as well. You, you end up with all this resentment for people that you love so much and it's not their fault and it's not your fault. It's just yeah. life. It's just the, the card you've been dealt. And it causes all sorts of issues that you don't even think will be a problem. Just, and just like that lack of understanding between yourself and your partner, like he doesn't understand my sadness some days, or I don't understand why he's irritable with me or, or I'm irritable with him or the roller coaster that happens on a monthly basis of oh oh I'm due on I'm due on I'm not feeling anything am I going to come on my period is this going to be the month bang period no I'm not yeah. pregnant a week of crazy hormones bleeding when I don't want to be and I'm not pregnant here we go try again I'm ovulating okay yep feeling good this could be the month bang all over again and I've had 22 months of that now of 22 months of crying and sadness and thinking why 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 and then 
everyone around me being pregnant, even bloody Harry and Meghan. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, yeah. every pregnancy hurts. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's pregnancies, and then, and then it's like shoved in your face three, four months later at the baby showers, and do you know what I mean? And then mm. all of a sudden the birth. So it's a constant reminder, you know. And do you, did you go through like periods of not thinking you were? not thinking you were good enough to have a baby is that yeah oh yeah completely yeah that's half the reason I needed therapy Mm. and it's one of those when you you go to therapy for one reason but then all this other stuff comes out and I always say don't want children don't want children not bothered not bothered but that wasn't it at all it was that I, I had this horrendous kind of deep-rooted fear that I'd never be able to protect them. I'll never be able to protect my children because you never can. You can't protect them from everything. You know, how can I how can I make sure that they're not going to be raped or they're not going to be a rapist? How do I stop that from happening? What if they're sexually assaulted? What if they're, what if they're murdered? What if they're kidnapped? What if they get hit by a car? Like that heartache that you go through as a parent, I can't even... I cannot imagine, I, I can't imagine at all how people deal with those things. And it just used to panic me so much. And I just used to think, I'm, I, obviously I'm not meant to be a mom because I'll be a terrible mom because I won't be able to protect them. And, and yeah, I, I had so much anxiety about being a parent, definitely. And all of them, see all them things you just said, I know a lot of people have them irrational thoughts mm. as parents, you know, like, oh, I'll be honest, I've had, I've had some terrible irrational thoughts about my kids growing up and in, yeah. in, in open situations of a park, you know, just seeing like, I had, I had one the other week about, I was in a park and I just had this thought that what if I just saw the back of my daughter's head so far away holding someone else's hand walking away? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not the fittest person in the world. I'd be knackered running over there, yeah. but I'd give it a bloody good shot. But then you think, oh, but I've got the other two. What, what do I do with them? Like, then you got to think, and the, the things that go through your mind, you're right. As a, as a parent, you do have them. And I remember having the same similar thoughts of self-doubt when we had our first, before he was born, I was thinking, am I good enough to do this? Do you know what I mean? And I can imagine yeah. in your situation, they're only a hundred million times worse because you want something yeah. so, so bad. <laughs> yet, you know, it's just not happening for you yet. And it, yeah. I just, you know, I really, and really. You start to think they're true. You start to yeah. think, well, it must be true because my body doesn't want me to be pregnant. So it must be true because things are, are going against us. But then I also have the guilt of it could be much worse. I've not been told I can't conceive. I've not had multiple miscarriages or a stillbirth or all these horrific things people go through. Get a grip. You're being pathetic. It'll happen when it happens. Two years isn't even that long compared to some people. There are people who have multiple failed IVFs, and then, and then I feel all this guilt and shame because it's not that bad. And then again, I have to take it back to, I'm allowed to be sad for my situation and still be sad for other people's situations, and realise yes, it could be worse, but I'm still sad. I didn't expect this to be our journey into parenthood. No, but at the same time, like you say, you, you will always, if you're in that in any situation, I think you'll always. And I think it's a normal thing to think, oh, my life isn't as bad because there's always some someone worse off. But on the flip side, yeah, this isn't anyone else's life. This is yours. So if you're struggling and if you're finding it hard, that's okay. It doesn't, you know, don't. Yeah. And I've, I've many people have said it to me before. Don't compare yourself to others. You're going through your journey. If your journey is hard. Yeah don't let anything take that away from you just do what you need to do and try and you know get the best help you can get and surround yourself with the most positive people and you know people that can lift you and try and help you through it as well yeah definitely I think being open about it has been the best thing I could have done because it's opened up so many conversations with other people who haven't had had that and then they've suddenly come up to me and gone I've, my my little boy was through IVF I've never told anyone before or yeah. I've, I've had two miscarriages or this is how and it's given other people the confidence to to speak up about their journey and then I feel less alone and they feel less alone and it's, yeah. It, it, yeah being open has been the best thing for me regarding this that's brilliant 
Um, and I think you're so brave coming on and just openly talking about pretty much your most of your adult life, to be honest with you, isn't it? You know, all the things you've <laughs> been through. It's not been an easy ride for you. And yet you're still having to have that almost it's almost a stigma, it's like a stigma around nursing and putting on your uniform, putting on your brave face, going to work and caring for others. And there's like and the reason you started your podcast is because there's almost no one to care for you or talk to to you as a person, mm-hmm. not a nurse. Yeah. You know, because you it's almost instilled in you guys to to Suck not Yeah. And that's such a shame. It really is yeah. a shame. It's insane. Nah, it's um it's not good and hopefully with your podcast hopefully that gets the stigma away from it and i think if anyone hasn't you know listened to it i think it's definitely one you guys need to go over and you know check it out the mad moon podcast um i've listened to a couple of episodes i think they're fantastic thank you yeah i'm really enjoying myself and i always just want more guests and anybody and everyone that works in healthcare they want to come and have a rant slide into my dms <laughs> Um, so on that then we're gonna we're gonna wrap up um due to timing but I think is there anything you want to say to anyone you know plug your page plug your Instagram podcast anything like that oh, just come and have a chat with me if anything I've said resonates with you if you work in healthcare, even if you don't if you're going through fertility things if you're trying for a baby and you're struggling and you just want to have a chat just message me yeah, I'm happy to speak to anyone and everyone. And I just think talking is so helpful. I know how expensive counselling and therapy is. So just come and have a chat. Trust me, it will definitely help. So like Ryan said, at the Mad Moon podcast on Instagram, just come and have a natter with me. No, that's brilliant. Um, Katie, thank you very much for coming on and being so open and honest about your journey and everything you're going through. Um, I really, really do. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. No, thanks a lot. And yeah, we'll speak. We'll speak really, really soon.